Well, I was initially unsure of whether I was going to continue in John's Gospel this week or take a week to address uh, the ashfall and the subsequent or, or attendant discouragement and just sense of overwhelmingness that many of us surely are feeling. I, I know I myself have been struggling this week. You can see me coughing and <laughs> blowing my nose up here. Um, but I didn't really know what to say. There wasn't really like a clear, compelling message upon my heart. Obviously, we trust the Lord's sovereignty, trust His providence. We look to Him to continue to keep His promises to us, to continue to be faithful to that which He said He will do. Uh, we examine ourselves as we go through suffering and see where it reveals shortcomings in our character. We ask the Lord to sanctify us through these troubles. We recognize that sometimes they're sent even for this very purpose of sanctifying us. I mean, we talk a lot about difficulty and, and suffering in general, and uh, all of these things apply to the Ashfall situation. Um, as Providence would have it, however, not this week, but next week, we will be talking about washing dusty feet. So we'll come to a relevant section of John uh, next Sunday morning, Lord willing, as Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This morning, however, I decided just to continue with the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. And by way of reminder, at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus is finishing up his public ministry. In John 12, 36, we read that after Jesus said the things recorded in the verses prior, Jesus departed and hid himself from them, that is, the crowds. Jesus is leaving the public eye for a couple of days prior to his crucifixion. Remember, we're now in the last week of Jesus' life, and the rest of John's gospel comprises uh, just that last few days before the crucifixion, and then uh, some time after the resurrection. But we are very, very close to his crucifixion. And he is going to hide himself from the crowds, take himself out of the public eye, and spend some intense time with his closest disciples and friends. And prepare both himself and them for the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Some commentators think that Jesus emerged again after departing and hiding himself from the crowds in verse 36 in order to speak the words recorded for us in verses 44 to 50. Others think that he departed and hid himself from the crowds permanently uh, until his arrest after verse 36 and that in verses 44 to 50 John is just recording something that Jesus said earlier in his ministry. And, uh, and inserting it here as a fitting summary of Jesus' public ministry before we move to the upper room discourse. In the end, it's really a, mute, a moot point which view we take, whether Jesus actually spoke these words chronologically after verse 36 or whether he had spoken them earlier and John just inserts them here and reminds us of them. It doesn't really matter. Either way, we can take these words as being a fitting summary of his overall ministry. So let's examine 
in greater detail the summary we see here in John 12, 44-50. And we will do so from three angles. The first is theological, the second is chronological, and the third is transformational. So let's begin looking at this passage from the first angle, which is theological. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, pardon me, the Apostle John takes great pains in his gospel to exalt Jesus above being a merely a good man or a moral teacher. John takes great pains in his gospel to exalt Jesus even above being an ontologically subordinate son of God. The way that we are called, or angels are called elsewhere in Scripture, sons of God. John doesn't even want us to see Jesus as an exalted son of God who is above humans, but nevertheless ontologically subordinate to the Father. Rather, John, starting in chapter 1 and verse 1, says that the Word, that is Jesus, was God. Contra to the Jehovah Witnesses, the Greek does not say that the Word was a God in any manuscript whatsoever. That is a translation the Jehovah's Witnesses should be ashamed of because before even interpreting what the verse means, they have already, dis already distorted what it actually says. They just haven't even brought it from the Greek to the English properly, let alone interpreted it properly. While John's Gospel certainly acknowledges distinction within the Trinity, for example, the Word was with God, implying and necessitating two persons. Nevertheless, John's Gospel heavily emphasizes unity within the Trinity also, especially between the Father and the Son. And that is the case here in John 12, 44-50. The unity of the Father and the Son is heavily emphasized. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. This is in verses 44 and 45. Later on, in verses 49 and 50, if we put two and two together and work out the implications... To hear Jesus is to hear the Father. For Jesus has been told what to say and what to speak. And Jesus says as the Father has told him. John does not want us to go away from reading his gospel and think to ourselves that Jesus was merely a good man. Nor does John want us to think that he was some kind of angelic messenger. Exalted above men, yes, but subordinate to God. John wants us to face head-on the dilemma that C.S. Lewis articulated so well. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. End quote. Lewis is right, there is either some insidious evil in Jesus which caused him to wickedly and blasphemously attempt 
to deceive people into thinking that he is God. Or there is some lunacy in Jesus for thinking that he is God when in fact he is not God. Or he is one whom, having seen him, you have seen God. Having heard him, you have heard God. Having believed in him, you have believed in God. John wants this to be clear. Before us, in the pages of John's Gospel, we have God Himself, who has become flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God, who from the beginning was both with God and was God. John wants us to understand the Trinitarian distinctiveness of the Son, yes, but also the unity of the Godhead. Jesus is God. What is the right response to this? Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? That when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. This is a forefront point of theology in John 12, 44-50. The unity of the Son with the Father. As the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is the theological angle that we have examined this passage from. Let's now consider John 12, 44-50 from another angle, chronological John wants us to understand that our response to Jesus matters. In fact, it is of eternal consequence. Let's look at the chronological sequence of events contained in John 12, 44-50. First, there is the speaking and sending of the Father. We see this in verses 44 and 45, and also again in verses 49 and 50. The Father has spoken, and the Father has sent. Then, chronologically, the Son comes and also speaks. To whom? To us humans. <coughs> so there is the sending of the Father, the coming of the Son, and then there is the choice before all men, whether to receive or to disregard the Son who has come at the behest of the Father. What happens to those who believe? Verse 50 tells us that the Father's command is eternal life. That simply means that it results in eternal life. The command of the Father that Jesus speak results in eternal life for those who will hear Him, for those who will see Him, for those who will believe in Him, as 
he who has been sent by the Father. Those who see, as Josh McDowell famously said, more than a carpenter. Those who hear, as C.S. Lewis said, more than a great moral teacher. Those who trust in him, those who lean upon him, those who put all their hope in him, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. Yet those who do not keep, look at verse 47, and those who do not receive Jesus' words will be judged on the last day, according to verse 48. There is a reckoning, even for those who don't actively refuse and reject Jesus, merely not receiving him results in judgment. So again, let's review the chronology. The Father speaks and sends. The Son comes and also speaks. And then what men do in response or in non-response to Jesus has eternal consequences. At the last day, the human race will be separated one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 25, some will go to eternal punishment and some to eternal life. What will you do with Jesus? Again, it will do you no good in the end to argue that you didn't actively oppose Jesus and therefore you are undeserving of condemnation. You can't just say, well, I wasn't against Jesus. Yeah, sure, I didn't receive him, but I wasn't actively against him. I didn't oppose him. Look at what this passage says. Those who do not keep Christ's words, those who do not receive Christ's words, they are judged, according to this passage. Jesus teaches here at the end of John 12 that even a non-response to Jesus renders a man liable to judgment. It is not keeping and not receiving Jesus which leads to judgment in this passage. If it is true, and it is, if it is true that the Father has sent His Son, who from the beginning was with God and was God, and that the Son has come into the world, and that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, if it is true, that looking at Jesus, we are looking at God. And hearing Jesus, we are hearing God. Then won't you look to Him today and won't you hear Him today? Trust in His perfect righteousness and don it as a garment to cover your own sin-stained attire. Trust in His substitutionary death. And as the Israelites of old on the night that they came out of Egypt, painted the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a lamb who died in their place so that none of them would have to. You 
Take the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, and apply it to the doorpost of your own life, your own person, your own heart, so to speak. Trust that his death on the cross was a substitutionary death where he died so that you don't have to. Won't you look to Jesus today? Won't you hear him today? It is of eternal consequence that you respond to Jesus and that you respond the right way. That's the chronological angle that we have looked at this passage from. We looked at the theological angle, the unity of the Father and the Son, the chronological angle that the Father sends, the Son comes, and we have to make a choice, and it's going to be of eternal consequence, what we do with Jesus. But it's not only of eternal consequence. Let's look, finally, at this passage from a third angle, which is transformational. Believing in Jesus brings someone out of darkness and into light, according to John chapter 12 and verse 46. I have come into the world as light, Jesus says, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The sense of this analogy here in this passage before us is, as John Newton said in Amazing Grace, we once were blind, but now having believed in Jesus, we are no longer in darkness, but we see. The light that Jesus brings here in John chapter 12 is illumination, understanding, perception. Again, this is summative of a major theme in John. <clears throat> Back in chapter 1, we were told that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone. Meaning that if anyone finds spiritual light, he has found it in Jesus. For Jesus is the sole source of light given to this world. To every man, woman, boy, or girl. There is light nowhere else, but this light shines into the darkness and everyone faces a choice. To hate the light and not come into the light, lest his works be exposed, as John 3.20 says, or to walk while you have the light, as John 12.35 says. In other words, we either suppress, ignore, and non-respond to the light, or we live by it. Walk by it. It is in this sense that Jesus says believing in him will bring a man into the light. It gives a man clarity to live. Direction. Purpose. Motivation. There is understanding which permeates his life in such a way that he's no longer ignorant of what he is doing and what he ought to be doing and why he ought to be doing it. And he comes to be a different man with a different lifestyle. Life with Jesus is the difference between walking when you can see where you're going and stumbling around 
in the darkness. Aside from eternity, the benefit of believing in Jesus in the here and now, or a benefit of believing in Jesus in the here and now, is clarity and understanding about the big questions. <clears throat> Why do you go to school? To get a good job. Why do you want to get a good job? To be able to buy the things that I want to need. Why do you want to buy the things that you want to need? Many people don't really think about life beyond these first few superficial questions. When you start to get into deeper questions, though, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What is goodness and morality, etc.? You cannot find a coherent set of answers outside Jesus. You may stumble upon some truth here and there, as one stumbling in the darkness may happen from time to time to stay on the path and be on the path and go where he wants to go. But Jesus is like the sunrise which reveals the whole landscape and the relation of every landmark to every other. When you embrace Jesus and what he teaches us through the apostles and prophets, you're no longer just swinging at a pinata, hoping to hit some truth somewhere. Rather, and I, I, I'm trying to beige in illustration here, you're Sir Garfield Sobers back in his heyday, ready to hit the ball for six, because you could see it. Unlike the pinata that you can't see. When you embrace Jesus and what he teaches us through the apostles and prophets, you're no longer just blindly swinging at a pinata hoping to hit some truth. But you're a cricketer ready to hit a ball that you can see. Clarity, perception, understanding. Jesus is, as 1 Corinthians 15 calls him, the man from heaven. He didn't ultimately come from Bethlehem, but from eternal glory at the Father's right hand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us at the Father's behest so that we might see God and hear God and believe in Him unto eternal life and unto clarity in this life. Trusting in Jesus is worthwhile not only for the hereafter, but also for the here and now. He is the man from heaven, the Son of God, God Himself. Believe in Jesus.